0: Everything I've learned is, has been through communities, like people helping me, me, me helping people, talking about things, sharing things. I honestly don't like use Google that much. I just like, you know, go to, to my people and ask for help.
1: Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello my friend, welcome back to Creative Elements. Thanks for hanging with me last week through a re-airing of Amy Landino and a bonus episode. I was feeling a bit burnt out as I told you, but I'm back today and for the foreseeable future with some great new episodes of the show. And I couldn't be more excited to let you know that right now I am recording this from my new home studio. Mallory and I have finally moved into our new home after a whole bunch of remodeling for the last month. At least I think that's the right term for what we did here. We painted six rooms in the house, we replaced the bedroom floors, we put up a board and batten accent wall in the bedroom, and we completely finished the basement. And let me tell you, my biggest takeaway from all of this is that I do not recommend trying to skim coat a ceiling. If you have textured ceilings and you're wondering how to get them smooth, skim coating is a method that basically puts a whole layer of joint compound, which is kind of like industrial grade spackle, on top of the texture. When it dries, you sand it and you put another layer up basically repeating that process until the ceiling is completely smooth. We did all that in the unfinished basement here, and it was rough. Many hours, many days. But after painting the ceiling, repainting the walls down here, laying some baseboard, and putting in carpet, the new home office, the new studio for creative elements is ready to go. And hopefully that means even better audio for my recordings here. Carpet is a lot better than hardwood floors in terms of acoustics. Hardwood floors is what I had in the last home office. And the more the podcast has grown, the more seriously I take little things like this. And so I just wanted to give you a little behind the scenes look at the life of an indie podcaster. All right, enough about me. Speaking of indie, today I'm talking with Rosie Sherry, the creator of Rosie Land and longtime community manager of IndieHackers.com. If you listened to last week's bonus episode of my interview with Cortland Allen, you've probably heard of indie hackers before it's a community of independent makers developing profitable side projects and it's a pretty big community
0: registered members wise it's i think about 140,000 people daily posts is like 250 people posting posting something every day comments is uh, around 1000 comments a day
1: if you hadn't guessed that's Rosie she's been managing that forum for the last couple of years And along the way, she's become one of the foremost thought leaders in the community building space, or as I like to call it, the community community. Rosie's background is as a software tester, and she built an online community for testers back in 2004.
0: It started off as a software testing club, and then that was a forum, like an online forum. and, And then after like three years, we started Ministry of Testing on the side.
1: Ministry of Testing, as you'll hear. Grew a lot, and Rosie found herself hosting several international events each year, earning upwards of a million dollars in top line revenue. She's been building community for years, both online and offline, and I wanted to bring her on the show because over the last year or so, it really seems like the buzz around community building online is reaching a new high.
0: So, so basically, like with with my newsletter with with Roseland, I curate a newsletter every week and. When I started, it was, it was hard to get five or ten links. But now, it's like every week, I have, I have like 30 links. And I, you know, I have to think, oh, what, what am I going to do with all of this? Um, and what, what should I cut out? Whereas before, I never had the problem. I was like, you know, I, I, I didn't have enough content. Whereas now, it's like I have too much.
1: Rosie's newsletter that she just mentioned, Rosieland, is the go-to source for community builders and aspiring community builders to stay up to date on what's going on in the community community. And she's working on a new community-building course, too. So in this episode, we talk about Rosie's history of building community with Ministry of Testing, what she learned through her time at Indie Hackers, the different forms community can take, and why trust is at the heart of improving community participation. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram, at jclaus, and let me know. And if you're not already in our listener community on Facebook, I'd love for you to join. The link is in the show notes. And now, without further ado let's talk with Rosie
0: I started out in the industry as as a software tester there just wasn't much around for software testers so I, and I just felt that there was some kind of opportunity to do something there and I was quite kind of excited at the time with like web 2.0 and lots of exciting things happening and I always loved experimenting with the next new tools and at the time there was this tool called Ning um, which allowed you to like easily host an online forum so I kind of used that as an excuse to start a community and basically it's like for testers at the time the the only choice they had was very corporate kind of websites um, or conferences that were very expensive and like they were all like three days long and kind of out, outside of my personal budget, they're talking like, you know, at least one and a half K to attend. And I guess like, you know, when you're new, kind of new to testing or don't necessarily have a big salary, it's like any company won't fund that. It's kind of like a lot, a lot of money. But on on top of that, it's like everything was very kind of corporate and salesy and I was very much in this geeky world, this web world, and I was like, that, that's not for me. There should be something better. So my f- focus from day one was always to figure out how, how can I make testing more fun? And that kind of remains one of the core aspects of what Ministry of Testing has always been about, is that how can we change industry in a fun and human kind of way?
1: That's a really interesting mission statement to lead to, well, I'll create a forum. So can you walk me through what you meant when you were thinking like, I want this to be more fun. Did you want that to be more fun for the individual on a day-to-day basis? Like in the work itself, were you trying to change the way the industry worked or are you just trying to make the job more enjoyable for people who are working it?
0: I think it was a bit of everything, right? So traditionally, testing is a very boring or can be perceived to be a very boring industry. And there weren't like interesting things that were were being talked about, or that's what I felt. I was like, you know, it felt like it was like the same topics over and over again. And there's a strong bias towards certification, like questions to pass, you know, testing certification stuff. It was all just like, ah, you know, I felt like there had to be something better than this. But for me, like, I made the content of the forum fun by looking for new discussions to be had. So. I generally took my kind of knowledge of testing, and I looked just to more, I guess, trending topics or interesting things that were happening, and I tried to connect the two and and, and talk about that as like, what does this mean for testing, or uh, how would you test this, or have you seen this new thing, and so you know stuff like that. So I was trying to be different from that, from that aspect, and then also like the fun aspect is. Even though, like, my original logo attempts were, were, you know, pretty lame. I also, you know, I I got some monster type images. Actually, virus, a bit like COVID. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Virus type images to represent the profile pic was like this, this green virus kind of thing. (laughs) Uh, It was just a stock image that I found. But it was different at the time because no one else, especially in the testing world was doing that. So it's like this little fun image. All, all, all the other testing websites had, to, uh, you know, these corporate, um, fake people in, in suits kind of pretending to do work. I made the promise to myself that I would never ever kind of have any of those kind of images on our website. So yeah, I, I guess like a big goal was like, There were certain things that I would never do. So for me, it was was useful to have those boundaries. I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to have these corporate images. I'm never going to talk about certification. You know, I'm never going to X, Y, Z. All these things that, you know, I just had boundaries. And I think that was probably helpful to direct the community in a way that ended up being, I guess, quite successful. Talk about
1: the decision to start the community in a forum. I know events were a big part of this early on too. So if, if I'm missing the order of operations here, let me know. But in the beginning, starting this community in 2007, what were you looking at around you as other communities that you pulled inspiration from or maybe modeled? Like how did you decide to go with a forum?
0: It seemed like a good idea, <laughs> basically. <laughs> it seemed like fun. It seemed like something that uh, I would enjoy that I was up for doing something that I had wanted to do and hadn't had an opportunity to do it I think there was like one other testing forum at the time and that was uh, based on the old kind of forum software that you get I, I, like the v, v bulletin type forum and I just thought well this, this this could you know feel fresh it could feel nice and it was purely a side project to be honest and I, I just remember like launching it and I, I knew people. I had like hung out online with testers at the time. There weren't many there, but just the fact that people knew me that helped me get to like my first like hundred members. And I I just remember being really happy that a hundred people would sign up. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Can you talk about the growth of Ministry of Testing and and kind of the journey that it took up until your time at Indie Hackers?
0: Yeah. So the growth was. Like 2007, I started it, a fun side project. More people joined and joined. And I, can't, I can't remember, maybe like by 2010, we were at like 10,000 members, something around that. And people, you know, the, the, there was a good vibe going on and it was taking up more time. And I was thinking, what, what am I going to do with this? <laughs> it's not really making money. I'd done little bits of advertising here and there, but, you know, it wasn't anything like significant. And I, I just made a decision for myself and I would say right this has to make money so I'm gonna register it as a business and I'm gonna find a way for it to make money and because like I had been doing it for three years I, I knew I knew what, what the industry was like and I I kind of had a gut gut feel for what what it needed so I decided to do events because you know there were just like no good events in my opinion at the time. And this was local to the UK, right? There was like no good local events, like affordable local events. So I focused on that, and and that's when ministry of testing started. I thought, well, it's going to be hard to kind of launch this as Software Testing Club on Ning. It doesn't really have the functionality for it. So I thought it would be easier just to like start a whole other website that's still part of the same company. And the first year we had, we did a conference with the training course. We had but 65 70 people show up which you know is a great number for a first conference especially when you kind of launch it like 3 months beforehand which in hindsight was not a good idea
1: <laughs> that's <laughs> a think. short turnaround for yeah, an event yeah
0: yeah exactly but you know you live and learn and yeah i mean the, the i think what did it was the fact that we had lots of the people that had went to the conference had been in touch with each other online for years they had never met. So when the event actually happened, it, w- it was so special. It was just like, you know, it was, it was like a reunion. Um, and there was just like this, this like really great vibe. And that's kind of what triggered it for me. It was like, well, you know, I felt like that, that there was something there. And then I just kind of repeated the, the same thing every year. So I did another event the next year. That was a bit bigger. That was 100, like 120 people. Uh, I did a bit more training on the side, and so it made a bit more money. And then I did the same again the following year, and it was like 150, 160 people. So not massive growth. And I think it was like the fourth or fifth year. Then people started asking. Like I think that was when I was selling out, like at the venue that we had, which was like 250 people, and we had like extended like pre-training days as well. So that actually ended up being profitable enough for me I guess actually like more money than I had ever made I think like I guess like 2015 was or 16 I think I did the indie hackers interview I was I was making like four or five hundred k or something and it was mostly just me running it obviously that's not profit that's cost but still it was like 250 300k and I was just like how did that happen (laughs) Um, (laughs) I I didn't know what to do. I I, I was like, I I didn't really like look at the money too much. And then like before I realized it, I was like, oh, all this money is adding up. So I I'd actually started doing, experimenting with like another event in the autumn. So like we had one event in the the spring and I started experimenting with another one in the autumn just to kind of keep things going and stuff.
1: You were selling out the event, which was annual at the time. Yeah. And it was 250 people. What was, was the ticket price like around $1,000 or $500? No,
0: it was, it was, it was around $300. So like 250 people. But then like on the day before, it was training days, which were a bit more expensive. So that was like more like $500 per person. And then at the beginning of the week, we had like other training courses, which varied between like one and three days.
1: Were you putting all of your time into this? Like, what did your, it's crazy to me to think about, like, we're ramping up towards one big event in the year. Like, what does the entire year look like as far as how you're spending your time?
0: To be honest, I don't even know. (laughs) (laughs) These days, I don't know. It's like, it wasn't full-time, full-time. Like, I had kids and stuff, but definitely, like, you know, I wasn't really doing other work. Occasionally, I would freelance doing, like, some freelance testing work and stuff. But it was definitely not full time, but it did take up a fair chunk of time, especially in the run up to the events. So, you know, it's like preparing an event is like I ended up creating a rule where we had to have the lineup for the event six months before the date, the actual date. I, you know, that's just like I think that's what people generally do, but and it's also the rule that I just came up that made sense because I realized that. A lot of people that ended up buying the tickets came from companies and they need, they need time to get approval and stuff like that. So, you know, I think these, these are the kind of things you learn as you go. And not full time, full time, but, you know, in the run up to it, it was, always, it was always kind of busy.
1: After a quick break, Rosie and I dive into our transition into managing the indie hackers community right after this. Welcome back. Just a couple of weeks ago, Rosie bid farewell to the Indie Hackers community in a post titled, After Two Amazing Years of Leading the Indie Hackers Community, I'm Stepping Down. Ask Me Anything. In the first comment, the creator of Indie Hackers, Cortland Allen, commented, When we needed someone to help with Twitter a couple of years ago and the forum was in total disarray and decline, you threw your hat into the ring. I thought there was no way we could hire you. You were running your own million dollar business. I remember asking you on the phone, You know this is a job, right? So I asked Rosie how her time at Indie Hackers actually came to be.
0: I moved over to Indie Hackers a couple of years ago now, but it was around that point that I was—I was, I was like—it was around like 2015 that people started asking me to do events elsewhere, and I, I think like part of me like regrets saying yes, but at the same time. You know, I think you should just say yes. A lot, a lot of people say, say no to things, but I ended up saying yes to a lot of things. And the result was uh, we ended up doing, by I think around 2018, we did like nine events across the world. Wow. So you know, we had done like San Francisco, we did Philadelphia, we did Brighton in the UK, Manchester, Dublin, uh, Germany, uh, Netherlands, Australia, and New Zealand. Wow. And then on top of that, we had like a hundred global meetups as well. Yeah, it's, it's you know it's nuts to kind of <laughs> think about that. But as that happened, I was like, I realised that basically, oh shit, uh, this is not the company I want to run. Um, <laughs> I've got I've got kids. I, I don't want to travel. And this is not what I want. So I kind of made a decision to myself. I guess it was around 2017 that I no longer wanted to run it. And the guy who, basically, when we did events in different locations, I would always partner up with someone who knew the city well enough. So they were basically kind of locals in the city. And the guy who was doing Manchester in in the UK, we had already worked together for a while, and he was keen for taking up the role, so I kind of gave him the role of CEO to take over. It was a slow transition. I did it, like, you know, over two years, to be honest. Slowly, like, handing over everything that I knew. And even when I was at Indie Hackers, I was still transitioning stuff over.
1: Where did that opportunity with Indie Hackers come from? Did you approach Cortland or did he say, Hey, it looks like you're transitioning. I have one heck of a role for you. <laughs> <laughs> what did that look like?
0: It was more like I was kind of like just like looking for an excuse to hang out at Indie Hackers. And I saw he was looking for some help. It wasn't specific community help, but it was more help with Twitter and stuff. And I, I just reached out and said, I'd be up for doing that. And he was a bit confused. He's like, don't you have a company to run? (laughs) I was like, oh, actually I'm just like looking for other things to do. And for me, it's like, I, I wanted to hang out at Indie Hackers. So I thought, well, if I, if I do like the Twitter for it, then it would force me to hang out there and I would get paid something at the same time. So I kind of saw it as like a learning opportunity. And then that kind of turned into him just offering me like a community role instead.
1: Did you understand what you were signing up for in terms of those numbers?
0: Well, it wasn't, it wasn't as big when I started. So this is like, you know, I started like almost two years ago and it's at least doubled, I think. All, all the stats have at least doubled, if not more. So yeah, I, I would guess it's probably more like tripled in, in some things. But, you know, the answer is not really. But I like, I, as, as I said, with the like ministry of testing, I, I like to say yes to things and then worry about the consequences later.
1: Can you talk about what it actually looks like to manage a community of that size?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of firefighting at times. Indie Hackers is actually pretty good, I think, in many ways in, in the sense that it's got like a really positive vibe and people generally want to do good things but also indie hackers it's it's a community for founders who talk about their projects and their products and it's what's an educational post made by someone is a fine line of self promotion as well and then if someone else tries to copy that then it comes across as pure self promotion which isn't what we want i think with indie hackers it's quite hard to draw the line of what's marketing spam and what isn't so I, I guess to give an example, like you know, there's like Drew Riley and and Harry Dry. They they quite often post about their projects and the stuff they do, but it's highly relevant to indie hackers as well. So they're book, they're promoting their businesses, but it's education as well. And then people try to do the same thing, and it just doesn't come across right. Is it like because partly because people don't know them, but partly because they haven't just put as much effort in into the content. So there's kind of a lot, a lot of like, there's, there's an algorithm that is, you know, kind of automated, but you know, there is manual input as well. So generally I try to make sure that the best content is on the homepage and the best content gets seen because sometimes there's just really good stuff there that people don't see. And I guess if you take into context, the the data that I said, like 250 posts a day, uh, that means I'm not necessarily reading all of them, but I'm definitely scanning through them essentially every day, <laughs> trying to trying to find good stuff and trying to find content that matters and trying to make connections with people and all of that kind of stuff. And then I guess on top of that, there's spam. Uh, like the, more, the more popular indie hackers get, the more people try to find ways through. So like every morning when I wake up, that's like the first thing I check for is like, who's leaked through the art uh, into our forum and such as, such is life.
1: <laughs> Given that there's probably like an unlimited amount of time you could spend reading content, moderating content, making sure that you're getting attention on the right content. How do you structure your time, if at all, to, you know, not just spend all day reading or, you know, do you have any like practices or routines to help you? Manage that?
0: Yeah, it's hard to be honest. There's honestly days where I feel like I kind of beat myself up because I feel like I'm not being productive enough. I, you know, you end the day and you think you look back at your day and say, like, "What have I actually done today?" And you feel like you've done nothing. Right? It's tough, especially especially as it's growing more and more. So you, you think you think you kind of get a uh, hold onto a routine. So like, I, I guess like pre-COVID, I felt like I had a good routine going, and then COVID happened, and then everything kind of like. The traffic and and the I guess general participation in the hack is just like spiked like massively, so I was like, "Ah," oh. and then you kind of you know it slows down a bit, and you start to get a bit more of a sense of no- normality, but i try I try to basically start the day and end the day with kind of like the queue and you know just going through stuff and tidying things up. But quite often, to be honest, I, I end I end up dipping in and out of it, you know, in between quite a lot. But, you know, ideally, I guess in a, in an ideal world, I would maybe spend two hours at the beginning of my day and two hours at the end to tidy things up. And then in between, I would be doing like other things like content that I write myself or reaching out to other people or um, I am organizing meetups as well. The list is never ending, basically. Rosie
1: just used a word that I really like when it comes to community building, participation. A lot of people will talk about engagement when it comes to community, but participation feels like a better word to me. When we talk about engagement, it's usually driven by our own metrics and reporting. We wanna see the number of posts and comments go up, but participation speaks more to community members happily and willingly taking part in discussion. In either case, engagement, participation, community builders are often looking to see their members take part in conversation. So I asked Rosie what she's learned when it comes to encouraging participation within a community, and she told me that it comes down to trust.
0: I, th- I think a lot of it is kind of setting up the, the environment, setting up like a community that like, has trust as an example or that, that a community that kind of understands who you are um, and that kind of talks, talks your language. Obviously, it's like no community is going to be for everyone, but kind of trying to I guess trying to set the scene of what you want to see from the community and not necessarily, I guess, letting the community, uh, maybe a bit controversial, but maybe not letting them have the full say in the way the conversations go. So you might like see conversations that you don't want to have, as you you know, you don't think are great for the community and you might decide to not have it seen as much, stuff like that. Or you might think that, other things are important for the community and you might try to find, you know, reach out to people to encourage them to do things around certain themes or the, certain topics. It's hard because, you know, I think the world changes so fast, especially now with, with COVID. So what, you know, trying to figure out what people need and, and in the context of communities is is tough because it's like, you know, if you, I wouldn't say fighting, but you want people to participate because if people don't participate you know it doesn't make a great community but at the same time you don't want to you don't want people participating for the sake of participating
1: you just mentioned trust can you talk a little bit more about how trust plays a role in community
0: for me like as, as a community builder as a community founder when i've kind of built communities up i don't like have like I don't even have like a year plan generally let, let alone like a 3 or 5 year plan and everything that um I've done has been like trust within myself of what what I what I believe is right and what I believe like the community needs but to be able to do that the community needs to have, have, have trust in you as well and I need to believe in you and what you're doing there's always going to be strangers but the more the more we can work together the the better we can figure out like the best way forward rather than like having arguments with one another. You could hopefully see through conversations and question things in a, I guess, mature way, rather than like having arguments with one another. And I think that's very much like in the foundation of any community building you have, to, or in my opinion, it's like, you have to have that as a foundational thing for a, a good community.
1: When we come back, Rosie and I talk about the growing buzz around online communities and whether that buzz is a good thing or not. And a little bit later, we get more abstract thinking about what community means across different platforms. So stick around and we'll be right back. Welcome back to my conversation with Rosie Sherry. Over the last year or so, I've noticed more and more buzz around the topic of community online. Even the founder of Reddit, Alexis Ohanian has said that we will soon be seeing chief community officer within the C-suite of major companies. So I asked Rosie if I was just more tuned in now than I ever was, or if she was seeing a similar trend.
0: Definitely the last year, I feel like community has definitely kind of blown up, even more since COVID. So I I feel like when I joined Indie Hackers two years ago, there was a sense of like, yeah, community is good. We appreciate community, but this, I didn't feel like there was still a lot going going on for the community industry. In fact, like when when I left Ministry of Testing, one of the things I was keen on doing is just focusing in on the community industry as a as a place to get to know better, because I had been building communities, you know, I guess since two thousand and seven ish, and I had never found the time to kind of see what was going on in the community world. So I, I made it my kind of mission to. To change that, and when I started doing that, I, I started like with a newsletter and like a website. And when I started that, there wasn't a lot. Just even a year ago, going on, there was it was very clear that there was like one. There was one kind of community Slack, which was CMX, and they were the main conference happening. There's a, you know a couple of other kind of community type associations and websites, but really. You know, apart from that and a few, you know, maybe 10 or 20 people, that was easy. Obviously, it was bigger than that. But visibly, as, you know, people blogging and stuff like that, there wasn't a lot. I was, was like, signing up to all these blogs. And, you know, it was like, actually, there's not a lot of people blogging, like, entirely on community. And now, just like one year on, I feel that has changed massively. And it's not just my... It's not just my wonderful curation efforts. It's just literally like, you know, more and more people are talking about it. You know, there's even VC funds. I'm not a VC person, but obviously with indie hacking. But uh, there's, you know, a couple of VC funds that have, you know, appeared as well. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's booming. I think a lot of it is still hype. I'm a bit skeptical of a lot of it.
1: Talk more about that. Skeptical of what aspect of it?
0: all of a sudden, every everybody wants community without like understanding what it is and what the commitment is. So it's it's like you know pe- you know people like basically they decide that they want a community without without doing the proper research into what kind of community they're going to have, and what's involved and what's involved in maintaining it. You know, I had a guy the other day who, who started a community and he was like, "I've got X amount of members, but it's all quiet and dead now, and I just don't know what to do." You know, and that's just like, so, so typical. It's like people start stuff and then it's, it's a ghost town immediately. And then, you know, I think, I think that probably ends up giving community like a bad name, you know, it's like, that's not what community is. It's like, don't do that. You just don't, don't do it.
1: Why do you think that's so common? Why do you think that that's something that happens that people start communities without understanding it and that they ultimately become quiet?
0: People fail. It's normal to fail, and I guess that's okay. I guess with communities it's more visible, so I'm sure there's, there's people who start businesses who start newsletters, who start anything and, and they fail and often fail quickly, just like like you would with communities. But I think with communities, it's more visible, whereas with a newsletter, it just like slowly, you know disappears, and no, and no one notices.
1: It kind of feels like a community is if you want to think of it as a product you know and how most products fail, the community product value is often inherent in the community itself so like it's this flywheel that you have to get turning initially or there's no value and then people won't show up and then the flywheel won't start turning and it just it, it just goes downwards and i think ultimately what i see it happen a lot is people don't really know why they started it or what it was doing for the people who joined it they just thought well i have an audience of people or it'd be nice to build an audience of people let me set up a tool
0: and see if it sticks I have no vision Basically, a lot of communities lack a vision, and I think the communities that work tend to have this like overarching vision that people get on board with. And Indie hackers has that. Ministry of Testing had had that. You know, I'm sure like Pat Flynn, Pat Flynn has that as well. You know that you know I'm sure you're more aware of than me. But you know people get behind them, and I think that's that's a problem with with communities is, is you don't have to have an audience. You don't have to have people behind you. You know, you can make it work in in other ways. But I think generally it's that people who have like a following of some sort, they have that for a reason. It's like because they care. Quite often I say, well, build, you know, build an audience, build a following. But it's not really that. It's just like, you know, work on something that you care. Work on it for a year before you even start thinking about building a community.
1: Can we expand on that point and kind of go down the route of, if I am listening to this, and I've been working on something for a year, and maybe I'm starting to build my Instagram account, maybe my Twitter following, or my email subscribers, my YouTube following, and I'm starting to think about, maybe I should introduce an element of community into this. What would you recommend people think through as far as like preparation, or what needs to be true, or what they should do to help get something kickstarted?
0: I would say, like don't use a community tool. Until you like absolutely have to, until until it feels like so painful that what you're doing like doesn't doesn't work. I think I got away with it kind of like with Ministry of Testing because that was 2007, and you know it's a different world. But you, you can build you can build community, you know, through email list. You know, there's nothing stopping you from you know having conversations, email conversations with people on your your email list. You can you know ask a question at the end of every email. Asking people to respond, you can do, you know, I'm not a big fan of surveys, but you can do surveys or, you know, I've got a newsletter and then I I invite people to meet up every week. So we have, you know, every week at the same time we meet up and I have like anywhere between one and six people showing up. That's that's community to me and it's very simple, you know, it's like talk to people, find ways to talk to people. We've got the internet, you don't need a community tool to, to talk to people.
1: I feel like the the word community is used very flexibly for different situations. You know, if you're a, a SaaS company, you might use a community tool for your support articles and you refer to that as your community. If you are a creator and you're having these one-to-one conversations through newsletter responses, you can think of that as community. You can also have peer-to-peer community where the goal is connecting people to one another. Do you think about things in categorizations like that or do you have a more rigid definition of what community truly is
0: i don't really like defining what community is to be honest i don't think it helps you know to me it's just like people coming together over something that matters or something that they're interested in i think people have they get too focused in on it and i think that's part of the problem with like community tools like especially in the tech world so when they think community, they think of a community tool, and that just like adds adds to the problem. I quite often see comments saying, "Oh, social media is not community." I'm like, "Well, it is if you treat it like one." You know, there's people you know gather over social media all the time. They find ways to do it. I think uh, you know, you know, you can use hashtags um, as an example. You can host AMAs, uh, you, know, you know, on Twitter. You could do the same on Instagram. You could do it on you know anything. You know, it's like. To say that that's not community is like the more you think about it, you know, in that way, and talk about it, is like people start to realise that actually, actually, you're right. And I, I, think like if you look at the youth so I've got, I've got teenagers. And if you look at what younger people are doing, they're, they're not, they're not flocking to community tools, from what I understand. I mean, I, I know they quite often use Discord and stuff like that. But if if you look at is it BTS who Use their community to, you know, make a fool of Donald Trump with his uh, one of his events and stuff. It's <laughs> like that's community. Is it? How is that not community? They're bringing, you know, their people together to to do something because that's that's what they identify with. And you know, all it takes is a is a tweet.
1: <laughs> totally, I feel like you know the root word of community is commune or communal, which just basically means coming together. You know, you keep using this phrase, coming together, and that's at the root of community. I've also seen you talk about community being a means of learning and education that people don't talk about enough. Can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, so basically it's like I've grown up with in the web for the past 15 years and I've seen things come and go. And I guess like I see like charlatans come and go as well or get quick, rich schemes as well or business models that I don't quite agree with. Because, you know, so, uh, you know, I'm quite into like the idea of business and how people make money is so that I like to run businesses. And a lot of what I see, like with education now, especially with COVID, I mean, that, that throws in a whole other angle. So, so basically, I, I unschool my kids. So for years, I've just been like a bit, I wouldn't say anti-education, but I'd be like, you know, like, I, like I don't alternative. believe alternative. I don't believe in the school system. And it took COVID for people to, st- to realize that actually maybe the school system isn't as good as what it seems. But you know, it is what it is. Um, you know, it's like, you know, I don't have issue with people going to school. If you want to go to school, go to school. That's fine. I just don't want to, don't, don't expect me to send my kids to school. But then it's like you take that angle and then you take it with people who do courses and then charge a lot of money for courses and people don't actually complete the courses. And I thought about stuff like that. And I'm like, well, I've, you know, I've obviously bought courses and I've, I rarely ever complete them. It's not necessarily the fault of the person who provides them, but it, it, it just makes me think, is, is, is there a better way? And, and it's made me think, how have I really learned everything that I've learned? And when, when I asked myself that question, it came back to community. Everything I've learned is, has been through community. It's like people helping me, me, me helping people, talking about things, sharing things. I honestly don't like use Google that much. I just like you know, go to to my people and ask for help. I go on Twitter. I go on Indie Hackers. You know, previously it was like Ministry of Testing or you know. I prefer to ask people questions rather than ask Google because the answers are always more interesting
1: and also more specific and tailored to yeah, you because yeah, they yeah. can know that context.
0: Yeah, and I just think like that's a whole area, exciting area. I think to. To bear in mind, is that obviously there's going to be people like jumping out at, oh, it's an opportunity. But, you know, I think it is. But, you know, I think people should like respect community with that in mind. It's like, you know, I, I tweeted, was it yesterday about uh, marketing and sales? It was just like a open-ended question and I haven't actually commented on any of the responses. But, you know, it was about has marketing and sales ruined communities? because. You know, from my experience, that's quite often the case that people come in just trying to promote their products or companies come in trying to advertise and then they want to control like what often what's like said or isn't said or what's what gets communicated or if there's a competitor there, they might get upset and, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah, I just, you know, I think it's a really interesting time for communities and I guess in my rosy world. Rosie Land up in my head. I would just love it if people kind of respected communities more and found like a more sustainable and good way to help them thrive.
1: What does that look like? Do you mean like financially for the people running the communities, or how do you mean?
0: I think it depends on the community. I mean, I think it's like um, you know, like Indie Hackers is a bit unique in that sense. So you know, basically, Indie Hackers was acquired by Stripe, so they. You know, they don't have to make any money, but they have, you know, as a result of that, they have different goals to, to grow. They want to reach and help more indie hackers exist, basically, so their goals are going to be different. But I guess in that context, you know, if I'm thinking about come and respect the community, is like, come and hang out and, and appreciate the work we're doing and align yourself with what we're trying to do. Don't align yourself with, with your own selfish needs. That we can help you, but you know, at least try to help us as well. And it just seems that like people don't don't see that when they go to a community these days. They see it as, as somewhere to for themselves. And then I guess like the other angle is like more communities that are, need to be self sustaining that might need to charge or might need to find some kind of business model. I had to do that with Ministry of Testing. You know, mostly we did it with events, and over time we transitioned to membership, and then were forced to do complete membership when COVID happened. But it's hard, it's hard. You know, I see what Ministry of Testament are going through, and it's tough to kind of get people to pay for stuff. But at the same time, you know, they've used the community for years and years and years, yet quite often they'll they just like continue to stay as free members and not really appreciate that actually signing up like, as a paid member not only, uh, not only helps them, but it helps the community as a whole.
1: Do you think that this increased focus and attention and interest in community is a net positive thing? Do you think that there are any risks with having it be so in vogue right now?
0: I guess the biggest risk is that people will, community will get a bad reputation because they'll have bad experiences. But I I don't know what you can do about that. (laughs) I guess the way my mind works is trust in my gut and just like at the end of the day, I can only do what I can do. And I'm just going to keep pushing forward and do the positive things that I, I, I believe will make an impact.
1: If I'm listening to this and I'm sold on the idea of trying to foster community in my personal creator ecosystem, whatever that looks like, what advice would you give to people to help them kind of stand out and be sustainable against maybe a, a new wave of a lot of communities?
0: I have this saying now that I quite like. So first step I would, I would say is validate your vision. So when I started doing Rosyland stuff, for the first six months, I focused on doing the newsletter, but not paying attention to the results of the newsletter, like not caring whether people signed up. It was more about whether I felt that I could commit to what I was building or wanting to build, whether I was interested in, in learning about community building, whether I wanted to connect with people, and that's like a six, 12 twelve-month process, in my opinion, of doing that, because it's like you're learning about yourself as much as you are learning about like the community you want to serve. And it, it, if you get past that stage, then I would say, you know, say experiment with models, and you know, start growing slowly and just start, you know, be be consistent rather than being like spiky in your actions. It's like do something every day that helps you work towards a like bigger, bigger goal, but definitely just like experiment with models and business models of how how you can make it work. I think there's a strong emphasis towards like paid communities, but, you know, I'd like to think that maybe, you know, you could probably balance that out with other things. You know, you could have a paid community, but also have, you know, you use some of the content to create like one-off purchases. Like I read recently somewhere that the data point probably isn't correct, but it's 400 times harder to sell a subscription model than it is to sell something that's one or like a one-off payment. And then balance that in with sponsorships if you can. So it's like, think about like, you know, those are probably like the three kind of main models As like, you know, sponsorship, uh, one-off payments of something and, and like membership. Membership is tough. It's tough to get people to subscribe for a, a long period of time. So I think balance it out that's what i'm planning at least is like trying to find that balance
1: what if we take a page out of ministry of testing's book and and do nine global events in a year
0: (laughs) don't do that
1: big thanks to rosie for being on the show she has been my go-to follow for all things community building over the last several years it was great to have her here for an hour to talk with her One of the things Rosie said that really sticks out to me is just how broad the term community can be for creators. I think of community as peer-to-peer connections between members of an audience and not just the audience itself. But that doesn't mean you need to be tied to a particular community tool. As Rosie said, you can create community on Twitter, Instagram, or all kinds of places. And when you're able to serve as that bridge between two people, that's a powerful bond that you've created to other members of your audience too. You can learn more about Rosie and her work at Rosie Sherry on Twitter or at rosie.land. Links to both are in the show notes. Thanks to Rosie for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Todd Hunter for mixing the show and Ryan Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you next week.